This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Save for Later from Guardian Australia, a podcast about internet culture and the tabs our brains just can't close. I'm Michael Sun and this week, Alex is back. Hello, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Coming up later on the show, a bird enters the classroom and all at once we are consumed by the takes. It's like the equivalent of a, a cultural traffic jam where it's just the only thing people talk about. It's really just going to assail you for that long. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But first, Michael, it's an exciting season on the other side of the world. And also here, even though it's autumn, the equinox is upon us. ID has written a trend piece about it. And so has the New York Post. Zendaya, Tom Holland, and their glorious height difference are being paparazzi shot all over town together. The hashtag just passed 1 million views on TikTok. It is officially Short King Spring. It is saying that tall men have dominated the dating scene for too long, officially calling this season Short King Spring. I, too, have definitely seen these photos of Tom Holland and Zendaya walking together, mugs in hand. He's looking very short and, I will say, quite handsome. Short King Spring is a disconcerting concept for me as someone who's who relies on their height as their only good feature, Alex. Um, but Short King is not a new phrase. Short King I've heard, I've heard before. What makes it a season? So Short King as a phrase has been around since at least 2018. It's been in quite common usage. I think like the seminal Short King tweet came from Jibuki in 2018 and it said, forgive the swearing, it's a direct quote, I'm fucking tired of short used as an insult. Short gave you Donald Glover. Short gave you Tom Holland. Short gave you Daniel Kulula. Short gave you Bruno fucking Mars. Short kings are the enemy of body negativity and I'll be forever proud to defend them. Okay, just hold it for a second. One of those names is not like the other. You have Donald Glover, Tom Holland, Daniel Kulula, all short kings. And then you have... Bruno Mars. Look, there's no there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> but this kind of discourse around like, oh, women, straight women particularly, kind of tend to prefer taller guys and maybe that's not so great was definitely like a massive thing as early as 2018. I'm thinking also of the famous reductress quiz, is he cute or is he just tall and white, which was also in 2018. But lately... Short kings have been trending on TikTok. 
Good morning, there's my short king. I'm on my way. Yeah, I have the short king with me. Five eight to five foot seven because it's short king spring and the short kings deserve the spotlight this season. Thank you. All right, we get this comment a lot. I share our height difference in hopes to inspire others who might be shorter than their partner, but we get a lot of hate like this. So It appears that I have inadvertently found myself in hot water in the short king community. Short king advocate, I like a weak. No muscle tone, and when we step out, I look like a chaperone. So there was a bit of a viral TikTok trend last year where people were calling their often quite tall boyfriends short kings, which was <laughs> ugh. But then the short kings reclaimed the term, and so did the people married to or dating the short kings. So one of my favorite videos of this trend is by US creator Abby Herbert, and she's got like 12.12 million followers. We all know that I am a tall queen and I'm married to a short king, right, Josh? Right. And she does a guide to posing with your short king over the holiday season. So it is holiday season and we know that means pictures. But if you are a tall queen, this is how we're going to pose. With and her husband, who looks unbelievably uncomfortable in this video, but also exactly like Elijah Wood at his most handsome, is kind of... <laughs> Standing there with her, it's it's a great one. I will admit that Elijah Wood is a short king. Um, clocking in at five five, the the image of Elijah Wood on a scooter. Um, have we seen this image? Replays my mind on loop all day, every day, and he is the definition of a short king. Someone who's so short and so hot. I get it. I get it. Yeah, you know Elijah Wood on the scooter. This is the short king urtext. He's weaving through traffic on that scooter. He's rescuing tall queen Lily Sobieski from a tsunami or maybe a meteor. I don't remember what the apocalypse and deep impact is, but it had a deep impact on my sexuality. I have never heard of this movie in my life. Deep impact? Yeah, that's. it was probably made <laughs> before you were born, Michael. It looks like an unidentified apocalyptic event. The poster is like a solar flare hitting the earth. That's where Elijah Wood on the scooter comes from, <laughs> rescuing his tall queen. As he should. So... More recently, especially as the Spider-Man No Way Home sort of promo cycle has really kicked off, it's been all about Tom Holland with his tall queen, Zendaya. So there are tons and tons of pap shots of them together. They're dating. He is significantly different in height to her. He's much smaller. And that's actually something that's quite visible in the Spider-Man movie as well. Mm -hmm. Somewhere said there how your height difference makes those stunts <laughs> more complicated. Thank you, Graham. <laughs> Because of our height difference, I obviously, if we're on the same, like, point, yeah, we, were I, attached, we, we were attached. Which is really refreshing, because if you think back to, like, the sort of late 90s short king, tall queen, ultimate pairing, I'm speaking, of course, about Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise <laughs> in movies, short king Tom Cruise really tries to hide that he's a short king. Like, that height difference is edited out with tricky camera angles and cinematography. He famously stands on boxes, right? Like, famously, in shots where you can't see his feet. Famously stands on boxes. Meanwhile, Tom Holland, a secure, powerful short king, is like, yeah, I have a massive height difference with my on- and off-screen girlfriend. What of it? Let me demonstrate. In these pap photos, these very famous pap shots where Zendaya and Tom are walking with, like, mugs in their hands, like, I will say that Tom is serving butch lesbian. Um, Zendaya's arm is wrapped around him. He looks meek, but also comfortable in his status as the aforementioned short king. Well, this is also a part of it, actually, is that being a short king is something that 
a lot of trans masculine people are like and celebrating how attractive they are and the power of that is quite vital. Like I'm thinking Elliot Page, like total short king, now also crazy cut like glass. Um, To go full galaxy brand on this, I feel like we also, like I've also seen this kind of discourse in subtle Asian traits, like that Facebook group which celebrates all the nuances of like Asian diasporic culture where (laughs) a lot of men in that group are talking about how they've traditionally been sidelined for their height. I do believe the average East Asian male height is significantly shorter than the average Caucasian male height. Do we feel like Short King Spring is almost a celebration of diversity, if you will. I I think we do feel like that. I mean, it's certainly true that, like, in the sort of, like, traditionally highly racist views of, like, Asian men being less attractive, height is definitely a factor in it. And similarly, like, the fetishization of Asian women for their smallness and that being hyper-feminine is a thing in the minds of the worst people in the world. And so celebrating shortness is definitely like a big tick for diversity on a number of levels. I feel like this is the point in the pod where I have to admit to you that I have a historical attraction for short kings. And I think it all stems from the fact that my childhood crush was none other than Grant Danielle. Oh, amazing. <laughs> What a bad back in the day we might have referred to him as a pocket rocket. I would say that Greg Daniel is not, however, a short king. He's a small man, which is <laughs> which is quite different, right? Well, you know, it sounds it sounds ridiculous, but there was a study back in or a kind of like data blog back in 2010 on OkCupid that showed that men were like pretty clearly lying about their height because the average height of men on OkCupid was two inches taller than the average height of an American man. My husband, who was obviously on the apps before we got together, says that he noticed that his friends who were much taller than him, tended to have, like, much better luck on dating websites than he did, especially ones where you had to list your height. And also there have been, like, weird kind of population-level insights around, like, this sort of deference we pay unconsciously to taller men, like, as is evidenced by the fact that they're vastly overrepresented in the CEO class in the US. Like, people imbue tall guys with an authority that is thoroughly unearned. But is it deference or is it fear? Because I feel like when I see a man who's 6'5", I'm quaking in my boots, Alex, and that's something that I'll be unpacking with my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you shouldn't shouldn't be too afraid, you know, like, really easy to tip someone over when they've got a high centre of gravity. (laughs) It's like cows. Yeah, exactly. Happy short king spring to all who celebrate. Everyone's the same height when you're lying in bed. Next, the slap heard around the world. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Alex, we all saw the moment. It started with a joke from Chris Rock. I love you. G.I. Jane 2. Can't wait to see it. All right? And then it quickly escalated. We were very lucky in Australia. Oh, lucky is a stretch. But we, we as Australians, on our broadcast, privy to the unedited broadcast, oh, we saw the slap. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And then some very tense moments followed. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's. And then came, you know, the deluge of hot takes, just the amount of posts that filled my feed trying to analyse the slap from every possible angle. Was it about domestic violence? Mm -hmm. Was it about sexism? Was it ableist because of Jada Pinkett Smith alopecia? No, it represents toxic masculinity. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Brexit, Trump, climate change, everything in there all at once. Every take was brought up and here to help us wade through all of these takes. James Hennessy, who runs the newsletter The Terminal and wrote about the slap TM for Guardian Australia and the guest today on this very podcast. James, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, James. James, I was watching the Oscars live yesterday. I was like trying to capture all the memes from the Oscars as part of Guardian coverage. And then when this moment happened, mm. they, there was definitely an audible gasp and or scream in the room that I was watching it in. Um... <laughs> When did you know that this was going to be a moment that would that would become such like a hot taked and discussed and discoursed incident? Well, I mean, you know instantly as soon as something relatively controversial happens at an award show that it's going to be kind of like the 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 center of kind of the the internet's conversations and arguments for a little while. Um but obviously at the same time you could tell immediately that this was a unique uh, happening in that realm as well because it also had all the qualities that really ignite people on the internet. The number one being that the stakes are kind of objectively sort of low. If you really, when you, if you look at what happened, it's very hard to take obvious lessons. Um, it's two celebrities getting into a fight, right? Um, but there are so many elements in there that are like kindling for this sort of stuff. Obviously, the it had an element of, you know, uh, it's about comedians telling jokes. So there's the cancel culture sort of vector. The joke itself um, was read as, you know, relatively offensive. It was about a disability. It was about alopecia. Again, that's another vector too. So when you see all these sort of elements sort of coming together, you knew immediately, oh, my God, this is just going to consume people in an incredibly intense way for a very long time. So James, were you were you watching the Oscars live when it went down, or did you just clock it on Twitter? No, I clocked it on Twitter. I was <laughs> I was actually working, so I wasn't. I was keeping track of sort of like who was winning the Oscars, but I wasn't. I wasn't actually watching the broadcast. I hear you. <laughs> For me, the Oscars ends when the final red carpet <laughs> arrival image lands on me. <laughs> right. Either way, we know that in Australia we saw it, and the second I saw it, I just felt my heart sink. 
Not because of the actual... I mean, yes, partially because of the actual shock of the incident itself. But I would say at least 80% because I was like, oh, like, now we're now we're really in it for a week. Yeah, this is it. This is what everyone's going to be talking about. I felt instantly dread, tired, boredom, exhaustion. There was just like an, an overwhelming sensation that that I could not handle another week of, of takes like this. Did we kind of ha- have the same experience? The preemptive ex- exhaustion is a big thing, right? Um, I think we've, we've we've lived in this sort of obviously the, the 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 fact of people talking about something objectively quite major that happens and finding all different sorts of angles in it is not a new phenomenon. But there's something about like the industrial scale exhaustion of it that comes with you know the internet um, and the way that we communicate about things now. Over the past decade, everyone has been corralled into basically spend their life on like one of four websites. Like you either spend a lot of your time on like Instagram or you spend a lot of time on Facebook or you spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know, and there's not really that many other communities online where most people spend their time. So as a result, you just know that these kind of platforms through which you sort of mediate your life and you get your news and you talk to your friends and you experience everything are going to be like basically in a traffic jam. It's like the equivalent of a, a cultural traffic jam where it's just the only thing people talk about and against your will, it's really um, just going to assail you for that long. Yeah, and you also can't forget with this one that there's also going to be a significant race angle and you're going to get particularly like very cringy white commentators like weighing into debates that they are thoroughly unqualified to speak on. Totally, yeah. Let's, let's scale back for a moment. And let's actually talk about some yes, of these Yes, we, we should, we should, we should. So the overwhelming sort of theme that you can see here is people trying to sort of plumb this event for some sort of deeper meaning, right? And obviously that's that's normal. Whenever something happens, we like to situate it within sort of a broader system of meaning. That's just what it means to be a human being. And obviously some of these quite plainly are people taking an event and trying to force it into whatever they're pet obsession is it at any given moment one of the very first ones that i saw that was flying thick and fast and started getting retweeted quite a lot was people trying to like use it as kind of like a microcosm or a metaphor for like the russian invasion of ukraine so they were kind of like you know uh <laughs> so there were a lot of, and obviously this this has now become like a genre like there's been people turn this into fuller articles and things like that. You know, you know, Chris Rock is Ukraine, um, Will Smith is Russia. You know, obviously most of the people who are arguing about this are not pro-Will Smith. Um, they're saying, you know, and this this joke is the um, patina of a, of a um, justification for war that um, Russia was using to invade Ukraine. Has anyone made the opposite argument and suggested that Chris Rock is in fact Russia? No, I don't know if I've seen that or not. It doesn't seem like as obvious a connection, but maybe. I don't know. I'm sure, actually, you know what, I'm going to reverse that. Obviously someone has made that claim. (laughs) And also I would say an obvious connection cannot be found there. (laughs) But the the other one is obviously like, you know, doesn't matter which way you come at this. And look, you may very well think that um, someone walking up on stage and slapping someone is not on. I think that's a pretty reasonable and normal opinion to have. Um, but obviously people trying to like find their view, they're, they're building all these sort of counterfactuals about, you know, how things could have gone. And so there were all these arguments from fairly big people. I know John Apatow posted it and then deleted it. Ah, uh, yes. The famous, what if it killed him? And then like the, the ultimate version of that was like uh, <laughs> the person who, again, they went incredibly viral. Because the big thing is like all these tweets go insanely viral. So I feel bad about people that have these like reflexive idiotic sort of hot takes because you know 
they don't necessarily they they're, they're shooting these out into the void. They don't necessarily intend for five million people to see it, which is why you know the the, the social media system we we exist in makes really amplifies this stuff, right? Puts it in front of people that didn't have no business seeing it in the first place. But anyway, it was the person. It was a, a woman. I apologize again for exposing her take to an even bigger audience. Um, but she was like, you know, what if? Uh, Will Smith got up and said, and it was Betty White. I don't know why she chose Betty White. She's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why she chose Betty White because Betty, Betty White is obviously already tragically passed. RIP, bless her heart. RIP, yes, of course. I guess what if it was Betty White and he had you know, fallen slapped her and she'd fallen over, she'd cracked her head open, she'd die. It's like, well, that would be terrible, but that's obviously not <laughs> not even remotely what happened here. So I don't quite understand what point you're trying to make. So there's, it's, it's, just, it's just these insane ways people that try to litigate their particular stance in just an absurd way. And again, it gets exposed to way more people than needed to see in the first place. I saw also a lot of whataboutism about like the racial element as well, where I saw many tweets either either propagating this idea or mocking it. And like tweets where I was like, what if Will Smith was white? Like then we would have yeah. treated him differently. And then it would be like blah blah blah. But, but I'm like, it that's that's not what happened. Like, <laughs> yeah, shut up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, you know, it's kind of hard to, I mean, I, I get where people are coming from when they try to comprehend it through that sort of lens. But at the same time, mm. it's like, well, well, how would it have been different? I don't know. He's like, this, yeah. this is the biggest story on the planet. Obviously it was two, it was two black men. It was Chris, it was Chris Rock and Will Smith. It's the absolute biggest story on the planet. He went on to win the, the best actor. It's like, this is such a specific circumstance. I don't know if you can really change any roles in this and have it make sense. My favorite take um, was from Tiffany Haddish <laughs> after the entire thing had kind of like just blown over. And I think it might've been an after party where she gave an interview in praise of Will Smith being like, isn't that a husband's role to protect his wife? And then she said, Jada, if I were you, I'd be f***ing you from the tonight. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did You know, we've been seeing so many insane takes, but Alex, have you seen any like particularly Australian versions of this? So my favourite Australian takes are the ones that liken it to the Christos Toklas novel, The Slap. Of course. So one of our former journalists here at Guardian Australia, who now works for The New Yorker, Naaman Zauer, had the most perfect Venn diagram that showed Australians in the centre of a Venn diagram of people with unedited access to the Oscars footage and cultural understanding of that novel. And then yesterday... News.com.au wrote around a Saturday paper essay that had come out a couple of days before by Christos Toklas about the Oscars, and they called his essay a bizarre and eerie pre-Oscars prediction. Alex, I literally also saw potentially one of the most insane takes come out of our great nation. The Young Libs, immediately after the event occurred, posted a meme where it was like, Ta- what was it? It was like Labor slapping taxes. Will Smith is Labor and Chris Rock represents the Australian public and the slap, and the slap is, is taxes. taxes. <laughs> and it's now deleted, which is the way that every tweet should go. It's quite funny because I'm seeing in the US people are surprised that there aren't as many takes as they anticipated. And that is not the case here at all. In Australia, the deluge of takes really did happen. And I think it might be a product of the Oscars taking place during business hours here. So all of the editors here, we commissioned without thinking, whereas in the US, everyone slept on it overnight and there weren't quite as many 
what does this say about Ukraine articles coming out of the US as people kind of initially anticipated would hit their shores? Um, I think another big one was the classic one you see with kind of everything, which is kind of trying to bring every conversation back to like Donald Trump again, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, he is like the gravitational centre of the universe still, even though he's no longer president. The uh, gravitational centre of the universe of like hot takes and because obviously all this stuff is so American, all of our content that we consume is so uh, bound to America, the pop culture, that sort of stuff. So there was an army of responses, a few of them again really heavily retweeted that were kind of like when I see Will Smith go up and slap Chris Rock and goes back to his seat and there's no repercussions and then he wins Best Actor. It just shows you, you know, how Donald Trump could have been elected or how Brexit could have happened. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like it's the bystander effect. Look at all those people doing nothing. That's how we get Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That's how we get Brexit. And also there was a few other ones like that's how we get the Holocaust, which I think is maybe (laughs) on the absolute experiment. That evokes Godwin's I think it does. It does. Yeah, yeah. So it's a different, different, you know, kettle of fish altogether. My favourite takes were definitely like the blow-by-blow inside baseball, and I mean this literally because they came mostly from baseball commentators' analysis of the actual moment itself. Like Jimmy Kimmel was breaking down what it's like to host the Oscars and the sort of writing approval process and talking Mm. about like what led up to that moment, but also a play-by-play that had it slowed down and shot from several angles where a man who normally only does baseball commentary explained everything that was happening as it happened These were things that I found surprisingly enjoyable about this discourse. But, of course, they were, like, laser-focused on the event rather than anything that it might or might not represent. The approvals process is, like, an interesting angle to the whole thing, I think, because we also saw a different joke in the night that also caused, like, a little bit of minor controversy where Amy Schumer kind of escorted Kirsten Dunst out of her seat um, and made, like, a joke about seat fillers. And then later on, there I definitely saw some accounts on Twitter saying things like, you know, like, that was so disrespectful to Kirsten Dunst. But then people were like, obviously, it was, like, everything is so heavily scripted in the Oscars to ensure that nothing, nothing out of the ordinary ever could possibly happen except... It did. <laughs> I feel very bad for the joke background researcher who probably just lost their health insurance as well as their job. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, there was a little bit talking about, like, did Chris Rock even, like, write that joke? <laughs> like, quite probably not. Is that guy, like, at risk of getting slapped, like, any moment? Is he living in fear for the rest of his life? Something that I found fascinating is that even though online, obviously, the discourse was endless. Backstage at the Oscars and then at the Oscars after party, um, our correspondent there, Hadley Friedman, said that she attempted to get quotes from dozens of celebrities and absolutely no one would comment on it. It seems like everyone was very happy to have sort of armchair takes at home, but the actual celebrities in this instance knew to completely keep their mouth shut and zip it. What do you think that kind of conflicting instinct is about? Like why are the celebrities staying mum while literally everyone else is going off? It becomes a gigantic sort of like PR problem, right? Like they don't want to put their their foot in it and cause any potential issues for themselves. This obviously intersects with the academy itself, which is like, you know, an enormous 
institution with labyrinthine politics of its own sort of like institutional kind of understandings. People don't want to rock the boat. So people understand politics and they, they get moral learnings and they get sort of like social learnings and they socialize themselves based on what they see sort of like celebrities do. They try to, they try to understand like their own human instincts through like celebrity relationships. And, you know, you could talk about like reality TV and all the, all this sort of stuff. It is like a big reality show that we try to understand ourselves through. Um, but, you know, the people, the celebrities are actually there. This has a material impact on their lives and their earning potential and all that sort of stuff because, you know, this is very real to them. It's not really real to us, even as real as we make it. The people on our, on our screens are not real. <laughs> is my cra- That's my hot take. That's my crazy claim. One other tension that I noticed, to bring it back to the, the value of discourse once again, um, is that many of the takes were bringing up definitely valid points, as we've discussed, you know, takes around like ableism and misogyny and race. I think a lot of the opinions that were being put forward were correct and fair opinions, but it was just the sheer volume of them that made, that activated almost like some of my most boomer instincts. Where I was like looking at my phone and I was like, God, like stop being woke. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is like an awful thing to say, makes me sound like Albo. But like, I'm genuinely curious whether there is someone out there who exists who's reading these takes being like, yeah, like this is actually making me a more informed person. Am I, am I just being too cynical and too siloed in my own bubbles by being like, all these takes are just annoying and they serve no purpose to society? Well, I think it is like the accumulation, right? I mean, like if, so, if you just had someone come up to you in person and offer their view on, you know, um, the, the joke being ableist and whatever they think comedy does or doesn't serve and, like, whether he was personally justified in going up there and slapping it, you could probably have a really great conversation with them even if you don't personally agree with that view. But the way that we actually consume these things is as, like, an avalanche, mm. right? Like, there's no there's no way now to just get one view or get a few views within your friend group, you know, that uh, social media throws them all at you in a in a gigantic wall and like the only way that you can really respond to that as like a human being is like exactly what you're talking about like that kind of like general revulsion it's like you know yes there are a few absolutely nuts ones that were retweeted heavily that you could look at and be like what the hell are you talking about but obviously you know the vast majority of people had reasonably more measured ones but the fact that we all got them at once and it's the only thing on your feed and it dominates everything and to the point that it supplants like a literal you know european war that's currently happening <laughs> like it pushes that almost entirely out of the headlines um is yeah like, overwhelming so it's completely understandable you would have that sort of response i think james you were talking earlier about how you know we spend most of our time now on one of the four big websites and i think it's quite an obvious thing to say that social media has changed the way that we experience takes or we experience take culture etc 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 but in your article for the guardian you actually mentioned a specific concept called context collapse it came up quite a lot in early social media when, you know, theorists and academics were trying to get their heads around what was going on. It's this idea that when all of the internet is, or all of, you know, human discourse is taking place in one sort of big open air internet forums, basically, everyone of all different interest groups, all different kind of like desires. There are people on Twitter for all different reasons. Some people are on there just to read about celebrities. Some people are on there to talk about politics. Some people are on there to, I don't know, watch porn. You know, there's just like a vast array of interests. They all get slammed into one place. So you no longer have any control over who's going to see your content, 
what context they're going to see your content. And a major event like the Oscars amplifies that even further because both the platform like aggregates content around that event's hashtag and it creates Absol- another metric for searchability and they actually like surface more when a major event is happening. Yeah, absolutely. They're pumping all the, the Oscars content out there. So certainly you may be someone that only has 400 followers or something, like a, a relatively uh, small amount, but you put out an insane post about the Oscars on the assumption that 400 people are going to see it, or maybe not many more than 400, then all of a sudden, you know, 100 million people see it. Mm. Twitter or the internet or social media lets 100 million people scream at someone who probably only needed like three or four people screaming at them. I think we're at a kind of an interesting inflection point where people are kind of like, actually, I don't really like that. It's kind of a very tense way to live. Yeah, it's interesting because like thinking back to when Kanye West got up on stage at the Grammys and interrupted Taylor Swift, the energy that that event kind of brought online and on Twitter was kind of grabbing the popcorn like the takes Mm. of one and a decade on what it hath wrought is like this just extreme exhaustion like people dreading the takes before they arrived people saying like oh why do you have to have an opinion about it it's almost like the joy of these big moments which certainly existed at some point has been like completely obliterated there was actually someone also tweeted that it also got shared around a lot today. There's like uh, literally a um, Marcus Aurelius quote from one of his ancient Roman texts. The quote from him was, you are not compelled to form any opinion about this matter before you, nor to disturb your peace of mind at all. Things in themselves <laughs> have no power to extort a verdict from you, which I thought is just an incredible thing to, to take in that context. I mean, personally, I'm taking those Marcus Aurelius words to heart. I'm putting absolutely no thoughts into this matter. And with that, James, thank you very much for sharing your take on the take and non-take on the slap. Absolutely. I'm going to add a few more layers to that. You'll be getting my takes on takes on takes on takes. I can't wait. We'll see you in the deluge. Yeah. Cheers. It's that time, it's the end of the show, and we've got to leave our listeners with a tasty little takeaway box. Tell me, what's top of your list this week? My top of the list is Rosalia's new album. Um, Her album is called Motomami. It's finally the follow-up to her extremely critically acclaimed um, previous album, Ellen McKede, which went viral and blew up the world for its kind of like reimagining of flamenco music. Now she's back with an album that similarly blends so many different genres. It's reggaeton, it's flamenco, it's hip-hop, it's R&B. And she just has this like incredibly experimental approach to pop music that makes everything sound so exciting. And her voice singing in Spanish and rapping in Spanish is just to die for. I particularly recommend a song called Hentai, which (laughs) has these incredibly explicit lyrics about how much she desires her lover, but then evolves into this video game-esque motor sounds, game sounds, Arca-style epic towards the end. That's the only way I can describe it. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. So excited to have a bedroom dance party to this music. (laughs) Alex, do you have a film for us? I do have a film for you. Continuing on my defense of the rom-com, um, I'd like to recommend The Worst Person in the World, which just hit streaming rentals in Australia. So it came out uh, late last year. It's directed by Joachim Trier, and it is a Norwegian kind of 
bleak rom-com. It's such a sensitive portrayal of not knowing exactly what you're doing or exactly where you're going and kind of allowing yourself to eddy along on the currents of life and the sort of insecurities that can come with that, but played with such kind of realism until the points where it kind of flips and becomes almost magical realism. There are these two incredible scenes where everything changes and it goes from being almost mumblecore to being like a hyper-stylized sort of um, almost Amelie-esque weirdness. (laughs) And it's just delightful and so empathic and captures a feeling that I think I've definitely experienced and I'm sure many other people have too. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, you should absolutely subscribe to Save for Later wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're nice about it, you can even leave us a review. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning, who also handcrafted the music. Exec produced by Miles Martignoni and Steph Harmon. We'll be back next week talking about all of the things that have made our computers crash and also our minds. 